we're talking about Hollywood, this is kind of a, a somewhat of a good transition by me, I guess. Um, Boom Blocks hmm. is a game you also worked on with yeah, had a great Spielberg, time of it all people. Out, yeah, it turns out uh, making a game um, a, a game about physics where you have all these fun little characters and you throw things at stuff and they fall over and that's how you get scored. And I'm not describing Angry Birds. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that came later. Not know. <laughs> that's what people said. Oh, well, you know, he just sort of lent his name to it. I go, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, really? <laughs> He, he actually coming come, came yeah, in, he coming, working oh, yeah, those long in. developer hours, those seventy well, hours. Maybe not long hours. <laughs> but for him, for for somebody of his stature, he, you know, he was scheduled to come by the studio once a week for an hour. He would come by the studio once every other week on average, um, and but he would stay for hours. I mean, he didn't. He oftentimes didn't leave. We're here doing it again with uh, Lou. Uh, first part was a, a was really a, a lot of information to try to process from the 140 plus games. Well, not we even talk about that many games. We talked about a lot of different games that you worked on. I think we would need like 10 more podcasts to try to get your whole, whole career down. Yeah, it would take a while. I'm I'm sure. <laughs> we were right. we were in the middle of Blade Runner stuff, I believe, and I was asking specifically about. Um, what Harrison Ford thought of the game or didn't want to do the game or something like that? Yeah, no, I'm happy to expand on that. Um, so we never really reached out to Harrison Ford or his manager to have Deckard in uh, the game. And there were a couple of reasons for that. The, the first is uh, Harrison had been on record multiple times of saying that he felt like video games were um, not... Uh, treating the the Hollywood actors with the right amount of respect and reverence. And he was worried that it would erode the salaries of actors. I think we could have gotten over that though, because first we were SAG and second of all, um, we were actually employing multiple people for uh, even one role. You know, we'd have a model, an actor, of, of a physical actor, a voice actor. So, so there's a lot of people that were involved in creating one of these, um, one of these digital characters uh, back then. So, and then obviously since then, Hollywood has quite warmed up to digital people with, um, you know, everything from Benjamin Button to, to the Sandra Bullock um, uh, space one, I can't think of it, where virtually every scene, every image is a rendered image. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that would have been a problem, but that wasn't the only reason. The other reason was uh, we, we had decided to do a story that was um, concurrent with the film and because the film was very much the story of Deckard, it would have been difficult to have him included in something that didn't happen on screen. Um, it's not that we followed Deckard through the story on the film minute by minute, but for the most part, the story was all about him. Uh, so the, the conceit that we had was, okay, um, we know that Chu ends up getting killed. We don't know for sure that Roy Batty kills him, although that's certainly implied in the film. So that gives us a little bit of creative license for your player, your, your character McCoy, or one of the replicants you're hunting to be the one who actually kills Chu. And that little bit of being able to play with some of the backstory was the fun of the concurrent storyline. Uh, and it would have been very difficult to do with Deckard. You know what's interesting? What Your studio was already doing some pretty big stuff, bringing in big actors Um, and so like, I would think that, I don't know if there was a better studio at the time to actually potentially bring in big Hollywood names and kind of bridge this gap between gaming and film. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we had, uh, James Earl Jones, Michael Bain. I mean, we, we, uh, even before that, way back in 92, I think we did for lands of lore one, we had, uh, um, Patrick Stewart, who did the voiceover. Um, Yeah. We had used, um, Hollywood actors, um, going all the way back to the the lands of lore and even Blade uh, Blade Runner, um, Eye of the Beholder days, I think we had actually some some fairly big screen names for after stuff back then. Um, but yeah, I, I, like I said, I don't think it would have been a, a showstopper to try to get a hold of Harrison Ford, but he obviously would have been very expensive and, and sure. understandably, understandably so, you know. And I don't think we could have given him much screen time. Um, honestly, it would have been it would have been pretty difficult to figure out how to get that to happen right. Yeah. Do you think you would even get a return on your investment when it was someone that massive for for a video game? 
Um, you know, it just depends yeah. on how willing the the actors were to work for the the various rates that we could pay. Um, it, and even then, they were extraordinarily expensive. Uh, but we, for authenticity, we wanted to make sure that we captured as many of the actual actors from the film as possible. I think we got just about everybody. Right. I look at games today like Cyberpunk and, you know, getting Keanu Reeves and stuff like that. And it's fascinating, right? Like maybe there is potential there to, to get someone massive oh, really now, build now, on that game. Really- yeah, nowadays nowadays games are big enough to do. They're bigger entertainment than any other medium. So, and the budgets are big enough to where you can get just about anybody as long as they're willing to do the work. Um, and depending on the game, you know, depends on how much work it is. If it's it's one thing to go in for a modeling session, um, you know, and do some voiceover, it's another thing altogether to have to go do thousands of motion capture sequences or something like that. It's a much bigger demand on their time, um, and and all of it comes down to authenticity. You know, how much do you want to capture the the actual uh, performance because we've moved from motion capture to performance capture. And, and um, in my, in my estimation, if you're going to bring in a big name, um, you want to do a, mo- you want to do a performance capture so that you get as much of that, that actor's ability into the character as possible. Right. What, what was the original goal when you started bringing in big names to, you know, Red Alert franchise, Command and Conquer franchise? Cause you were one of the first, you know, companies to do it. I mean, I, bluntly talent. I mean, yeah. They're good at what they do. There's a reason they're famous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like you also got approval from obviously everyone wanted to be on board. Hey, we want to invest a lot of money into. The, you saw a return on that investment, right? You would say. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the, the time and time again, people have asked, you know, was it possible to make money with all these big names? But absolutely, we had we had very successful games. So they were our budgets were were large for our cinematics compared to what other um, companies might do. Um, but arguably, I mean, if you looked at what Blizzard was doing with their pre-rendered cinematics, they very quickly stepped up the quality of those cinematics to where when we were budgeting, budgeting it out. <laughs> no worries. Uh, <laughs> Got some guests. Yeah. So uh, sorry about that. But, no worries. Yeah, for, for us, it was, um, you know, we very, very quickly uh, when Blizzard started ratcheting up the quality of the, the graphics they were doing with big teams of cinematic artists. I mean, honestly, they were very comparable, if not maybe even exceeded our budgets for live action filming. Uh, we had our own studio, which saves a lot of money, our own motion capture equipment. So when you put all that in and um, just getting a return on that invested capital, um, the actors and and the, uh, the script writers and the behind the scenes talent, we use people from uh, a lot of people from um, from Hollywood, but we also use some local talent as well. As long as the quality was was up to Joe's, Joe Kukin's very high standards, we were happy to use um, wherever we could find the talent. Right. And it's interesting today that you're seeing a lot of games go the other way where they're now trying to create content for like Netflix. You've seen, uh, I don't know if you've seen Cuphead has a sh- new show on Netflix. No, I, yeah, I didn't, they did. I didn't know that. I love Cuphead. It's amazing. Was, the graphics are incredible. And it's like a yeah. more of a kid's show. Um, there's a League of Legends, Arcane. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, that I have seen. Arcane yeah, is beautiful. Incredible, yeah. incredible well stuff. Yeah. Do you kind of wish that maybe you could revamp the you know red alert command conquer franchise into like a netflix because there's so much rich stuff to work with there and yeah yeah i mean that would it, it would take um you know it would take a really good team we we did dance around the idea of a command and conquer movie multiple times um yeah there was a uh, multiple times in the past where we had either been approached by script writers or actually gone out and had scripts uh written but but i think that the timing for the industry was um, was such that really the the things that we got back, I don't think the the writers really quite understood our industry very well, and they would come back with stuff that was, uh, you know, sure, uh, Red Alert was very campy, but it was campy in a very deliberate way, and it just came back with a different voice to it. It just didn't sound right. What do you mean um, campy? And- I, I, maybe I'm... I'm a little confused. You're campy. Well, Red Alert, Red Alert was intentionally being, you know, the attack of the 50 foot woman uh, you know, came from Red Alert giant ants, you know, okay. I mean, it's, it's very whimsical and um, fantastic. And so the acting of Red Alert was intentionally campy. It was intentionally a little over the top, over the top. Okay. Yeah. I especially with, especially with the Red Alert too. Uh, with command and conquer, we really didn't try to be campy. We were trying to be as serious as we could. Uh, and we just weren't, as practiced in our art as as things happened over time so i think it comes off as a little campy but that wasn't intentional um all the command and conquerors were taken we took them very seriously i'm also wondering how that process would even work how many and how many people from your team would you need to commit to uh you know a venture like that because that's a massive undertaking in the middle of already building a competitive or you know at that time a very competitive scene the rts genre you know 
Yeah, that was that was part of it was the creative drain. But I mean, honestly, it was that Hollywood at that time was, I wouldn't say dismissive, but certainly it looked down a little bit on games as being a sub medium. And they didn't really per- they didn't perceive it as being, um, you know, they, they were going to do their movie the way they were going to do their movie. If you're licensing their property or you're hiring them, you're hiring them for their expertise. And so it didn't have the same feel. As the, as the game. Um, and that it's it's hard sometimes when you're doing that. I mean, there's been a lot of video games that it did, haven't done well because they um, the Hollywood interpretation was a little too, maybe a little too straight, straight a little too far from what the fans really wanted. Uh, yeah. Famously, look at uh, Sonic the Hedgehog when they revamped the entire film because it just, I'm sure the people who created that character didn't, you know, didn't intentionally want to uh, make it, didn't read. It's just, they thought they would do something fun with the character that was different and, you know, it was met with quite a bit of fan backlash. And um, that, that happens quite a bit in, in films. I haven't seen Halo. I'm, I'm really anxious to see that, to see how they did, how they did that. But nowadays there's a lot of stuff that comes out. That's really good. So I, I think at this point, um, certainly the numbers argue for uh, Hollywood and games to treat each other with respect. So I think that's happening now. Maybe there's some correlation there as well, because you were saying um, you were saying, uh, what were you saying? Sorry, a brain fart here. Uh, when you have an idea and you want to make like a sequel of something, right? You you people want they say they want the same thing, but they want to be made f- like to feel that feeling that they, they felt. There. So how do yeah, you create that feeling from a game into a show or a movie? Well, I mean, and I think that's actually the biggest challenge. I think I said earlier the biggest challenge of doing a, a product or a game like Blade Runner was capturing the feel of the film as closely as you possibly can in a very, very different medium. Um, and that that's the, the high bar that you're trying to hit. And similarly, if you have a game like Halo that somebody has spent for that series, I mean, literally the customer has spent hundreds and hundreds of hours of their life, maybe even thousands of hours. And they have so much of a rich understanding of the world and the characters and how they interact with other people. And then you're trying to reduce that down to, you know, less than two hours of film that how it captures that richness. Um, it's the same problem that so many films have for trying to capture the density and the richness of uh, great novels or series of novels. I mean, you imagine if you had tried to make one Harry Potter movie that encapsulated the entire series, <laughs> right. you, just, you just couldn't do it. And so uh, the, the places where the original creators have a lot of control over the, the other medium, um, I think those are the ones where like JK Rowling did with Harry Potter and others. I think you see a lot of authenticity that comes through, uh, but sometimes they're just not good at it. Sometimes an author is not good at directing a film, sometimes vice versa, a film director isn't really good at understanding the interactive medium. And so um, it takes a special group of people to work together on that. And you would have actually been really qualified because you already had success going from film to game. I mean, what's to stop you from going game to film and having potentially uh, I- Similar yeah, maybe, there. <laughs> maybe a, a younger Lou would have been a little bit more arrogant. Um, I I really respect how hard it is to make a film. I've been enough, been close enough to the process to know that um, even as a very celebrated game director and done many licensed properties, trying to direct a film is a different animal. Um, it'd be fun to do, uh, but it'd be nice to do a couple of try to do one or two of them before doing something with. with yeah, Hollywood. maybe not start with a hundred million dollar budget and. Uh, your first, uh, your first uh, movie. Yeah, no, I would say, I would say part of it would be make sure to start with something. Um, and, and I think that's how great film directors often start with less, more constraint and then they become great. I don't know of anybody that, you know, started their career out with these massive budgets, you earn them. And I think that, um, you know, honestly, as, as a game director, you know, a bunch of young punks at the time, we thought we could do it. But, um, you know, unlike Joe Kukin, who is a celebrated, he's already a celebrated and good director. He could, he could do that work as a, as a creative lead for a franchise. It would have been hard to do a film. Uh, very difficult. I think Joe, Joe could have done it though. Honestly, um, Joe is, is, was such a good, you could just see how well he could, he could do it directing talent. He got great performances out of great actors. So um, I could easily see him directing a film. Here's the path. A red alert to remaster. It sells like crazy. Everyone falls back in love with Red Alert. We start an esports scene. Next thing you know, the movie is made. That's the yeah. path to the movie. Well, would it be a remaster or would you be a redo, right? Would it be a yeah. would it be a would it be a 
another Batman movie would be Batman Begins, right? right I mean, right. I, that's actually uh, the the way to think about it. I, I think that I think that we're going to see that. We I don't think we've seen it quite yet. I can't think of an example, but um, I do believe that the franchises have been now. We're, now we're talking decades old, massive franchises. I think that it's ripe to go back and do. Um, the original game, but not as a remaster. Um, I think actually as a remaster, Petroglyph was was practically perfection. I mean, they did such a beautiful job of revisiting um, uh, the product with love that I, I just don't think you could do much better than that. Uh, but that doesn't mean you couldn't go back and do Command and Conquer again um, as a complete re- refresh. Uh, it, you'd have a very high bar to hit, um, not unlike trying to make a game out of uh, a seminal cult classic movie like Blade Runner, very tough to do that. Yeah, I, I actually now remember what we were talking about before. It was Blade Runner related. I was bringing up the fact that there was four different CDs that you needed for the game. Yeah, so right. <laughs> you, the amount of stuff you managed to do with such restrictions is kind of fascinating. Yeah, and that actually hurt to some extent too. When we started the project off um, and we and we came up with some of the technology solutions that we had, um, you know, we were real super excited about the fact that we could get something that back in that time and age, that day and age, resemble the film and capture that that feeling that mood um and that was it required inventing the voxel technology that we did and everything else but but ultimately it, it just kind of all held together really nicely um and then as we started building this ambitious game with so many different paths and so much different content and so many different scenes um and the artists just oh, again and again and again blowing us away with what beautiful and rich environments they could do um the the digital budget just started exploding them we really in the beginning we planned on being on a single cd and then you know pretty quickly it was like wow we're not going to make it on a single cd i guess we're better we're going to have to go to two and and ultimately by the time we were done we had a lot more content than we could even fit on four cds really yeah yeah we had to compress the shit out of stuff to get it to, <laughs> get it to fit so what's the content like what do you mean like different storylines well, same, same, same stuff just better quality you know oh. there's a few scenes where if you'll if you're watching blade runner there's a few scenes where you'll see um close-ups of mccoy or something that are in real time all of our characters in our game could have looked um as beautiful as the as the images that you saw in the cutscenes. uh but it just was constrained by uh you know the performance of the computer and compression um we did a really good job on compression but uh but even then you know if you i don't remember what the original stat was i used to know it but um many many gigabytes of of data uh were in the uncompressed and the uncompressed data for all command or uh, sorry all of blade runner um, yeah blade runner there was just i don't know how many countless gigabytes so when it was all compressed down it sat sat in came in at a little over 1.6 or whatever it is four cds so four times the 700 megabytes so what is the problem with that many cds does that like reduce your your profit what is the the big yeah it was expensive it was expensive so it took away it, it was also required players to switch cds in the middle of the game at times too oh, which is right. not, that's not ideal. As, as yeah. ideal uh so that's why it was remastered on um dvd as well uh at some point um so i don't know uh, you know, when that exactly happened, because it was kind of post, uh, post the time where we were, we were, it was basically just like a DVD and it would have just run because we would have found the files. It wouldn't have tried to ask. So. It's interesting that today you have so much room to work with. Like, what would you do differently? I guess if you, because today you don't have those restrictions that you didn't you yeah, have to no, innovate to get to where you wanted to go. Whereas today you have so many possibilities to work with. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you still have the you have different problems. If we if we took the same approach, and I'm not sure we would, but if we did, then we would be doing some sort of digital online um, just online develop, uh, d- downloads. Um, so that would that would be possible. But again, you're going to have to compress stuff because um, the higher resolution images and higher resolution loops, um, even by today's standards, would take a long time to download. Right. Um, we were talking about Hollywood. This is kind of a, a somewhat of a good transition by me, I guess. Um, Boom Blocks hmm. is a game you also worked on with yeah, had a great Spielberg time of all turns people. Out, yeah, it turns out uh, making a game um, a, a game about physics where you have all these fun little characters and you throw things at stuff and they fall over and that's how you get scored. And I'm not describing Angry Birds. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, some, people might not know. <laughs> some people not, might not know that that actually yeah, came exactly. much later. 
In fact, actually, in some of the early interviews for the folks from Angry Birds, they had mentioned they were inspired, or at least uh, uh, inspired, uh, in, you know, yeah, I guess inspired by Boom Blocks, and uh, they stopped saying that pretty quickly, I guess. Really? Uh, maybe, oh, damn it. Maybe their, maybe their attorneys got on them or something. But um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, Stephen had the idea to do a side version for the upcoming um, uh, phones and tablets, and uh, I think it was iPhone, really, and um and uh, EA Mobile at the time said, "No, we can't b- hit a big enough market with that. We need to do the the Jamdat, you know, tech block characters. They redesigned it. It was more like a Mario game. It was nothing like Boomblocks at all. Um, but Boomblocks, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, Stephen came in the studios and said he wanted to build a game for kids. So he was already working on a much bigger project, which which ultimately um, I did get chess to work on for a little while." Um, a game project never, or a movie project? A game project that never that never came out. Oh. Yeah, it was an absolutely gorgeous project. I, I wish that had been finished, but the budget, uh, the budget for that was time and money was just going to be extraordinarily large. Why um, did he even want to go? If I don't know, I'm a little bit ignorant here. Why did he even want to go in the video game space? Was he is he a big gamer? Yeah, or yeah, really? Yeah, he was involved in the original uh, DreamWorks um, Medal of Honor with oh, uh, the female character. Wow. Yeah, not uh, I saw, but the one before that. Uh, and he's always um, he's always sort of tangentially or even not so tangentially been involved in games um, and liked them, you know, like making them. That's what people said. Oh, well, you know, he just sort of lent his name to it. I go, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, really? <laughs> he he actually coming come, came yeah, in, coming, working yeah, those long in. developer hours, those 70 well, hours. Maybe not long hours. <laughs> but for, him, for, for somebody of his stature, he, you know, he was scheduled to come by the studio once a week for an hour. He would come by the studio once every other week on average. Um, and, but he would stay for hours. I mean, he didn't, he oftentimes didn't leave uh, when he was supposed to. So, um, so no, he was, he was very much involved in uh, boom blocks right from the beginning. Wow. I mean, I didn't know that. That's fascinating well, yeah. to me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun working with him. I mean, he's a, an incredibly talented individual and um, great insights of human beings all the way around as uh, one of his comments was, you know, uh, uh, he, people like to watch, physical things play out because they think they know how they're going to play out, but then they're surprised. And then kids just like to break stuff. You know? yeah, so right. He was just really, uh, he's sort of spot on with that. And I mean, Angry Birds is a great example of his, I think his genius, even though that wasn't a game he worked on. Um, he, he was similarly, he pitched EA many times to do a, a human simulator uh, where you, um, you kind of hung out in your house and you would go get grocery shopping and make, make, um, make uh, dinners and things like that. And yeah, basically describe the Sims to a T, but he, but he didn't build it. Oh, okay. He just, he just thought it would be really interesting to make a game of human simulation. And then, um, you know, I, and I don't think that Will Wright was inspired by that because it, it came out in some of our discussions later. So I don't think he knew about it, but it was just these sort of insights that, um, uh, that Steven, uh, Steven Spielberg's always had that I, I always found incredibly fascinating. Um, I wish I could remember a few more of them. Maybe I'll go build a game to, to <laughs> give him more credit for it. But but he does deserve the credit. I mean, it, it, it is it was Boomblocks uh, was the highest rated Wii game that um, EA had ever shipped at the time. One of the best third party games ever on the Wii, I believe. It's- yeah, it was one of the highest rated. Yeah, and 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 and, and Boomblocks Bash Party was a lot of fun too. We right. Uh, he was also on that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There was a really interesting story there. That's a fun one, which is. Um, normally when you finish games back then, you had a gold master period where you would finish the game. Everybody's killing themselves to make the deadline. You finally make the deadline. You send out the gold masters, everything gets certified. And then you have about a call it 60 or 90 day window where everybody gets to decompress. You get a chance to kind of take a deep breath and everything. Cause you, you need to be available and around. You need your code base available for the next, for in case anything goes wrong. Right. Right. Um, but then once the game actually ships, then you talk about sequels and whatever. Um, and so uh, right after we finished Boomblocks, we we all got together as a team. We said, okay, I know this is crazy. We've all been killing ourselves, but what if we just built the sequel? What if we just jumped on it right now while everything's fresh, archive the code base, let's just go build a, the, the sequel bash party and build all the stuff that we wanted to get in that we just couldn't quite get in. Um, and then uh, when, when we talked to Stephen about it, said, would you, would you mind continuing to come down to the studio and they finished? And he goes, that would be great. So, um, so literally in the next 60, 90 days, we nearly completed all the things we wanted for Bash Party before we even started Bash Party as a as an official project. Wow. That was really yeah. Right, so that's, that's insane. Really, 
that's how we were able to get Bash Party out um, so quickly. We got it out within a year of the of the first one, which would have been very hard otherwise. Was this easier also because you've all developed an engine for it? You have like the idea now. You have like characters. You have like designs. And, it no. would have been if we weren't. It wouldn't have been. It would have been if we weren't so ambitious. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> but yeah. yeah, but yeah, some of the things we wanted to do was to have the a lot of UGC. Um, and, and have a way of doing the reviews. And um, and that stuff just will end up taking a lot of time. But um, the Bash Party is, uh, if you if any of those find, fire, fire up their Wii, go play Bash Party. It's it's amazing uh, how much is in that game. I'll definitely be showing footage as we're, as we're talking because yeah, I, I think it. people yeah, forgot about it. And when you think... Yeah, no, I mean, it's, if you imagine Angry Birds on a Wii, that's pretty much what it is. In 3D, <laughs> yeah, in 3D. Yeah, but, but before Angry Birds. Right, course. right. I want to make sure that you know, we, weren't, we weren't doing a fast follow. That wouldn't have been worth Steven's time for sure. It's fascinating that like if you think of Steven Spielberg, you think about the movies he's made, and then you think about this game, and you're like, really? Like how he made like a he wanted to make a yeah, he just wanted to make something fun. And um when you looked at what the Wii could do, um he had some other ideas that we we collectively just did, didn't do because of just the scope of them. You know, he had um he had some ideas about a, a game system that would basically making a game where you could make games. Um, and very that exists. dreams, right? Is that there's yeah, a PS4? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you could probably, but he wanted it to be, he really thought about the, the blockiness and everything because of the limitations of the machine and all that. I mean, you could easily argue that would be a, you know, kind of a Roblox or something right, like that. Right, and, right. Um, but that's what he was thinking, you know, um, again, the guy, the guy's like just nothing short of genius. So, um, yeah. It's incredible. I'm, I'm more curious about what like a, a day to day for him would look like. Cause you have all these developers working coming it's in pretty, it's pretty shocking he'd come in and work with the team and um you know that was, it was always uh doug church myself and amir rahimi would get together with him and we'd be kicking around those ideas and then you know he would he would actually interact with the rest of the team as well we would just generally you try to keep him from walking the floor because he just gets mobbed um, <laughs> right but, uh, but then actually uh you know he would leave the office and then we'd see him on an award show or we'd you know oh we can't i can't come this week because i'm in darfur you know right <laughs> sure <laughs> it was bizarre but um yeah it was it was fun though it was, it was really a great life experience and you know the game was recognized with a BAFTA so we all uh, we all really were appreciative of the opportunity to make it yeah that's really cool I mean that's really cool that a guy like that would dedicate so much time to perfecting this game where maybe you would think like oh this is just a side project whatever I'll let these he just came in and made a great game with you guys yeah he, he cared a lot yeah I want to talk a little bit more about what do you, what do you think about the future of gaming because this is something I've talked uh, a lot about with many developers and we're talking about, you know, virtual reality. We're talking about crypto, you know, play to earn or pay to earn games. I'm really curious because you've worked on so many games. I mean, who better to ask about where this industry is heading than you? Yeah, um, well, all of the above, right? So uh, so I think that there will continue to be persistent um, premium games you pay for. You pay for once. Um, and you get a great experience out of them. And I think more and more companies will follow um, Blizzard's uh, example of continuing to support games even after, even if they are a purchase once, right? Um, you know, pay to play, uh, <laughs> basically. Pay to play, yeah. <laughs> uh, I know the, the people don't call it that, but that's what it is, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and then I think, um, I think the free to play model will continue to persist as well because I think it's the way of, especially for multiplayer games, because it's a way of reaching a really large audience really quickly. Um, and so I don't know that there will be. Um, I don't know that. Depending on a pay to pay to play model, works very well when you want to grow really really fast audiences really fast. You can do it with sequels and things like that, but it's difficult um, right out of the gate with a new IP. Um, I do think uh, play to earn will become a category and will um, maybe not replace, but it will significantly curtail the growth of uh, free to play because um, I do believe that uh, however it is you earn real value with your time whether that can be transferable into another game, <clears throat> into a catalog or some other way recaptured is just going to be a compelling argument for players to spend their time on, on products. And um, you see it with Axie Infinity and a bunch yeah, of yeah, for sure. where the game is a good game. It's not a bad game at all. Uh, the ecosystem is incredibly complex, but just the sheer ability for uh, people to um, uh, earn what is not what it would be say globally is not a great wage, but um, is more than good enough for the kind of areas where they live just opens up a whole new opportunity for, for um, people to do something as a career. Ed, um, Ed Del Castillo actually had a really funny thing that he told me when we were talking about this. 
he was saying that one day you're going to tell, I'll tell my kids or whatever the next generation is, you know, I'm playing this game and they're going to ask me, well, how much did you earn playing all these games? <laughs> yeah, how much you make? And I'll be like, make? I didn't make anything. Yeah. They're like, oh my God, you're like a dinosaur. You played games for, for fun, yeah, for free. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think, I think that's probably, uh, that's probably true. I mean, that, I, I think the assumption, um, you know, there was a point in time where people go, what do you mean you're just sitting there watching people play games? That's right. Ridiculous. Yeah, that's the same then, thing. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. In esports, um, you know, athletes are earning larger and larger uh, paydays, and it's getting more and more competitive because of that. So um, I think that's, again, another category that just can't but do anything but continue to grow. Um, it's very hard to break into esports because of the uh, the switching costs and the entrenchment of existing things, but it will happen. There will be some competitive game that just becomes the next um, Counter-Strike or, um, you know, CSGO or something like that. Right. Um, or Fortnite so, or whatever it may be. Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so I think uh, all of those above, I also, I'm also a big, um, a, a big believer in VR, um, especially as uh, the new Vive and the, the new um, Oculus products are coming out. They're just, uh, they're just so natural and they're comfortable and um, that kind of thing just makes it easier and easier. So what's they the big hurdle there? Yeah, what's the big hurdle for VR? Well, they still have some challenges. Like the forward IR is really important so that you can see objects. You don't go crashing into things. Um, that does take you away from the, uh, from the experience, but it also um, protects you. Right, <laughs> right? yeah. I think one of the things that is still a, a difficult problem to tackle with VR is, um, is telepresence. So it's the idea that... Um, my avatar is puppeteering under my commands in the same space that you are. So we're actually feeling like we're participating in the same space. Um, and I think that's that's continuing to get better all the time. I, I think I think that's a huge, a big win for uh, VR over time. Is that like, in, it, sorry, I'm, I'm maybe a dumb question. Is that like environmental stuff that you would kind of feel like you're in the well, environment? I mean, literally, if I put on my VR headset, and not only can I be in the same place with you having perhaps this interview, sitting sitting on a couch or whatever, and when I move around, you see my avatar move around, whether uh, it's okay. a representation of me or whether it's a, whether it's a, something else. Just the fact that you can see facial expressions and grit gestures and things like that, um, I think that has a chance to uh, it, it just has a chance to kind of revolutionize the idea of how to how to physically participate in the same space at the same time, which opens up all sorts of ideas for game ideas. And I love I a VR podcast like system. That would be amazing if we could sit in a virtual room and there was yeah, zero was delay when we talk. Like, that would be unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's the learning. Those are all the learning steps for becoming um, great at AR. And uh, the AR, I believe, is actually the big long-term um, benefit because uh, I just I have I've seen how beneficial Google Glass was when we were using it for our. Um, for our uh, techs that we're working on in slot machines way back in the day when I worked at Shuffle Master. And it was just amazing because we had so many different devices and so many manuals. I used to have to carry like literally a suitcase on rollers so just to, because you didn't know what you were walking into. So you just carried everything with you. And then that sort of quickly got replaced with um, devices that could look up schematics and find things very quickly. And so um, I do believe that that's going to happen more and more gracefully so that the, the lightweight frames that you wear um, would barely even rec- that you barely even notice that people are wearing them, and they they augment to the reality around them. Are and we think- are we close to a chip in the head yet? Or uh, well, I know Elon sure. thinks he Elon wants Musk to. Think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. Hopefully, we don't have the same fate as some of those monkeys. But, yeah. you know, yeah. but um, but no, I do think we are. Um, I mean, I think at some point, um, maybe not chips in the heads exactly, but uh, but all of the things that the great science fiction writers. Um, Back in uh, you know uh, um, Asimov and um, Al, Al, George Alec Geffinger and others that have imagined uh, neuromancer and they're, they all imagine these ideas of interfacing human beings interfacing with computers. I, I think that's a, I mean it's a foregone conclusion it will occur. It's just when is when it that's the question, right? Uh, and how? I mean maybe it's uh, a socket in the back of your head that feels pretty kind of gross in a lot of ways to to the meat puppet that I am, um, but I think at some point in the future. It might actually be not that. It might just be nanites that you inject in your body and then they communicate with the outside world and there you go, um, you know, next to nothing. Uh, they might even just enter through your through your pores or something, not even. Have you uh, seen, have you watched any Black Mirror? Are you a fan of Black oh, yeah. Mirror? Yeah. 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 With the, yeah. with the recent, well, they were able to rewind like an interview or something back in their yeah. head. That's, ter- that's a terrifying future that. 
there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of stuff that, that you know it's really easy to imagine how technology can go off the rails and become horrible. Um, unfortunately, that will happen too, right? I mean, that's that's part of the unfortunate nature of things that make our lives better are oftentimes able to make our lives much worse. Um, so just you know, I'm I'm a, I'm an optimist. I believe in human nature, although in recent news makes it harder to. <laughs> right, you know, sure. But, um, but anyways. Um, you know, I think that technology is a way of, of opening up new oppor- opportunities and new horizons. And from an entertainment point of view, it's super exciting to be able to get closer and closer to people feeling like they're there um, and giving them an experience that is, you know, transcends reality. Right. And, and what are you kind of working on nowadays? I'm working on something that's a little a little askew. I'm working on Green Park Sports, which is um, our, our idea is to redefine uh, fandom, basically our, uh, the, I'm not the founder, but the founders had um, uh, one of them is uh, 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 Chad Hurley from uh, YouTube. And so anyways, but the founders you can look them up, but they're, um, they basically uh, had this idea of what, what is it we can do to, what is it we can do to measure fandom, authentically measure fandom and give people um, progression and long-term rewards for being fans and give them a way to socialize and engage with each other more easily. Gamifying. So Fandom, gamifying fandom, but also socializing fandom in a way that doesn't exist right now. I mean, if you're a fan of an athlete or a team, you have to go to a subreddit somewhere and dig up all your um, kind of. It's very laborious to go around and try to find things, and and nobody really cares um, if you show up every single day. Maybe the other people do a little bit, but there's no there's no progression. You can't say, oh my my fan score is a hundred. You nobody knows. Is it's not like um, like a, an Xbox uh, score or something like that, and I think that that's I think that's what you know that is what really excites me about the company. I think that's where we're we're going to be very unique. And you can extend that to anything, right? You can extend that to having fans of a content uh, channel. Yeah, well, so so our we're we're a licensed property. That's the other thing is for oh, the authenticity. Okay. For authenticity, we would want to make sure, we we do make sure that we are only. Um, providing a licensed opportunity. So um, we, we already licensed uh, League of Legends, the LCS League. Oh, so nice. we Very cool. have League of Legends, um, this other little sport called the NBA you've probably heard of. Never heard um, of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, MLS, uh, Major League Soccer, as well as La Liga Soccer. Um, so, and then new leagues um, that we'll be announcing in the near future. So super fun. Uh, our idea is to create those social networks and really not to create the networks, but to basically enable and facilitate the social networks for fans versus uh, versus trying to have everything be about the the team or or trying to come at it from the sport and then get to the consumer. It's actually celebrating the fact that fans themselves are a community and um, a group that deserves. Is, is this also in the crypto space and NFTs related? Is. That's also a factor in this? It is. A lot of our, a lot of our investors are very uh, big fans of, of crypto. And so, um, we had very early designs on how to how to build that into our economy and how to build that into our collections. So we've already had one drop in November of the um, core virtues, which is uh, basically our expression of um, experience accelerators. So if you buy these crypto objects, then they will actually the gear for your little greenie. You have an avatar that's a greenie that's kind of a bean man that wears um, gear. Uh, super fun too because you can be a fan of multiple things. So you can have your Team Liquid jersey with your Golden State Warriors hat, you know, and um, maybe your you know, your cool kicks from that, that glow from the Knicks, you know, something like that. So so you might have like a gr- group of teams that you're really super excited about, or a particular athlete where you have their jersey, and um, you're able to put that on your greenie and express that as an avatar. So that's the sort of way you can express yourself in in Green Park. Right, and and that's a, brings me to my next question. Were you right off the bat kind of in on crypto? Because you probably one of the first people to kind of learn about it in the earlier days or no? Funny enough. Yeah. I mean, a weird way, not as a, not as a creator. Um, um, I didn't, uh, didn't have the opportunities and not the places where I was, wasn't lined up with that, but, um, but very, very, quite a long time ago in 2000, I want to say 11, oh, 11 man. Nope. Well, you bought some Bitcoin uh, and you're just. I bought some Bitcoin. <laughs> <Damn it. laughs> I've done well. Well done. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, I, uh, I've actually told people kind of laughingly that um, I got into crypto early enough to where I took the risk with money and I put it into Mount God over in Japan and couldn't really read Japanese. So it was like super wow. risky. Could have lost it all, but. <laughs> Managed to move it to one of my friends' wallets who was a miner, and then he moved it. Then moved it to Coinbase when they had when I felt like okay, that's a U.S. company. I feel more secure there. And then I opened up a wallet and you know MetaMask and others. And so, um, but basically, just uh, um, I'm 
I kind of got in early enough to where I've been selling crypto, but I don't, I've moved it around to different things, but I've and speculated, but I've never really, um, I've never really voted with my risk. In fact, I've never reinvested. I haven't had to. Right. So, wow, that's so, so it's a weird, yeah, I have, uh, I've made my money back m- multiple times over and now I'm just I bet. Uh, playing around in this place. So. <laughs> now it's just for funsies. For- <laughs> yeah, well, it's no, it's real money. You know, you can convert it to real money and I have to pay taxes. So it's, so it does matter. <laughs> sure, sure. What what's the biggest potential of crypto that you see for you know in your space? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, so first of all, a couple of things. I'm big fans. A shout out to the guys at Immutable X that are doing the layer two stuff. Um, that's really important because uh, you know that's a it's a zero carbon um, solution, and I think that's important. Um, you know, we we need to be a little bit cautious about our environment. We don't want to keep creating technologies that cause us to chop down trees. That's not so good. Like the Earth, um, but at the same time. Um, you know, I mean, I think that the, the really fun, exciting thing about it is that the the public ledger of ownership, the, the what I would call providence. So there's a lot of people in my industry and others that would argue, you know, crypto is kind of an unnecessary technology. Um, you know, you can obviously, if you have an, a product that you're offering, um, why not just be a centralized service that offers that product that happens all over the world? So what solution are you, what problem are you solving? Um, and a lot of times people will tout the, well, you can make an object and use it in multiple places, but that takes like multiple people all agreeing to do that, which is starting to see with Decentraland and a couple others, but uh, it's going to be a while before that happens really well. I think, but the thing that really matters um, is the ability to prove ownership of a digital asset. um, And that providence is really important. Um, The fact that it's a public ledger, the fact that you can prove that you actually bought it from a source that actually was minted, that that whole history um, is just something that The transparency is is just unmatched. Yeah, exactly. And so- um, it also it makes it fraught for fraud and people each other and also other horrible making things. an infinite amount of it or whatever the current yeah, so, problems we have. Yeah, so it's one of those problems, you know. But but you know that's all. You know, is it proof of work? Is it proof of stake? And you know, it's all these sort of crazy ideas. Uh, but I think that that's the biggest thing that crypto has to offer, or crypto technology, blockchain technologies. Uh, I think it's better to call it blockchain technology because not. Yeah. Over- not all of it really resolve, revolves around crypto per se, but the idea that you can have a shared public ledger um, that is secure is an incredible um, advent uh, innovation for technology and for, for society that we're only beginning to see the, the real fruits of that. Um, you know, a hundred years from now, providing the, the blockchains that, that, that do persist are end up having some one or two that are, that are standardized right, or, right. Or, or maybe even there's now lots of efforts around recording blockchains so that if they ever should go away for whatever reason, there is still a public ledger available. Um, so in, in 100 years from now, it won't be one of those questions of like, well, where did you get that super yes. cool collectible thing? And, and it applies to physical objects as well as digital objects because you can always tag a, a physical object with a digital one. And as long as you transfer the providence with the physical object, you can prove a, a chain of ownership back to the authentication data originally. Yes. originally which um, is really big. I also think that those technologies are going to be great for um, digital assets when we can sort out the copyright issues. Right right now, it's not entirely clear where copyright doesn't really exist in the crypto slash blockchain. Um, and that's something that we do need to rationalize at some point because the, when people spent the money to buy a thing, um, they expect to have a certain amount of rights because we've we've learned over the rule of law that when you buy something, you have some use of ownership of it and sorting out, sorting out those issues is um, going to be really important for the future too. And decentralization web 3.0, do you think we're also well on our way into that, especially considering the current climate and misinformation and censorship and all these topics that kind of yeah, I mean, have a solution with web 3.0 potentially, right? I think what's really exciting about web 3.0, at least from a green park point of view and what we're doing right now is the idea that, Oh, well, we have this IP that we're developing and it's super fun and we're going to make this object. And Oh, by the way, there's this other people that are doing this other thing. It's like, Hey, it's like the sandbox. It'd be really fun if you could do greeny stuff in your sandbox or if you could right. bring your sandbox stuff over to green park. And um, so we're collaborating with them. And I think it's really, um, that's a, it's a really fun space to be. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's another another like un- notch to its belt. Yeah, unrecognized yeah. Un- another unrecognized benefit that I think is going to be really fun. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of truth to the if you are a games company and you have digital assets that you sell for your product and you're well funded and you're going to be around for the life of the game, um, do you really need 
you know, a blockchain solution? Probably not. I mean, it's probably, that's probably just a, a solution looking for a problem, right? Then um, is Ubisoft trying to do like kind of... Yeah, Ubisoft, Ubisoft is going to, I, I, I hope, well, I know because of commerce that some people will race into the NFT space thinking, hey, here's another way to Quick monetize money it. Grab. Yeah, that's not, that's not wrong in the sense that, sure, if there's a way to do that with some authenticity and respect for the community. But on the other hand, um, you know, it, it's, it's, there's, it's a very specific set of solutions. So you need to have the problem to solve with that. Um, so I didn't know really, I wasn't a hundred percent sure what Ubisoft was trying to do. They were basically trying to create a NFT system. I believe in their game, they can buy items. I think, I don't know. I can't remember if it was a shooting game or whatever, but yeah, I mean, you could just, you could just release quickly say any game that has skins, why not? Yeah. Skins? Convert as skins basically to NFT. It's just, it's just another way to buy a skin. And what's nice about that is you know how rare it is, you know how many there are in the world. Um, so you have, you know, you have some properties about it that are pretty, pretty cool and, um, and the ability to be able to do it. So I'm not a, I'm certainly not an anti NFT person, obviously, um, yeah. but, but I also don't think they're the solution to every problem. I mean, they're, they're, they're a, a new type of way of, um, selling assets and a good opportunity for, for play to earn. I, I think me and Ed were talking about Blizzard and or Diablo or the. I think they he was saying they lost a lot of money because they kind of didn't embrace the fact that their um, gold was being sold as kind of a currency around the world. There were some poorer countries that use like gold ore in World of Warcraft, and yeah. I think Blizzard was actively trying to prevent this sale or these like third party people well, from selling. Right? Yeah, but there's good reasons. Um, you know, when we build products for a certain type of consumer base, um, there's a license for how you're going to use it. And then people start to use it in a different way. Um, there's a rule of law and you're, you're trying to protect um, your intellectual property and, and how it's being used and also potentially your consumer. Right. So um, I, I fully support Blizzard for you know trying to protect their consumers. Um, I mean, nowadays in the future, it may seem archaic that that you didn't have a, a gold that was tokenized that you could easily move to another game or a different game from the same company, at least. Um, but, but that's not, that wasn't the problem they were facing at the time. They were facing people uh, not using the game in the way that was legally intended to be used. And then that can be difficult because you don't want to fall, run afoul of um, any kind of laws or regulations. And also changes the entire ecosystem. Basically you've built your game around potentially and, so yeah, I mean, and I think, I think some games it's less like in competitive games you you don't want to have a pay to pay to win kind of strategy. Um, I'm a big fan of um, pay to compete though. What's uh, pay to compete? Well, am I am I'm just something I use as a sort of just sort of short shorthand for saying uh, catch up mechanics. Like um, I don't think anybody cares that the the back cart in Mario Kart runs faster than the front one because you're not going to get in the front just by um, being fast in the rear. You're just going to be with the other people playing. And so I think that when you build mechanics where people be able to contribute money, it's exciting and interesting to allow them to contribute money to be to give them a sort of fighting chance to be part of the crowd. Um, and it becomes quickly uninteresting if um, you can spend money and be good and therefore therefore be un unreachable by other people who are very good at the game. I think if you're going to preserve a skill level in your game, you need to not let that high-end skill gap be achieved through um, purchasing. My first game was actually um, FIFA. That's kind of what I first built my channel around. And I have, I'm really disappointed kind of where the franchise is heading. But from EA's perspective, they're making very good money doing what they're doing essentially and but it's really interesting to see a lot of nations around the world are starting to kind of crack down on loot boxes uh, you know some nations yeah, Belgium, catch, Netherlands. Catch mechanics, catch mechanics are an interesting one for me too because as long as the customer knows what the what the what the distribution the chances are and things like that um this this might be because i have a uh, i have a casino gaming background as well so it always comes down to transparency and honesty so as long as you, as long as it's it's transparent and and you're clear about it, I don't think there's anything wrong with having chance. It's a lot of fun. I mean, what fun would bingo be if you knew the order of the, the balls? It's kind of the end of the end of the game, right? It doesn't. It's not interesting at all anymore. It's fun to have that random chance that pops up. Yeah, the, the counter I would say to you is um, because EA currently has a game that's rated pretty much for everyone, I believe, and those mechanics are a bit predatory to child or children playing the game that might not be aware of them. That's kind of where. Uh, they're kind of in hot water with some countries and yeah, I, mean, I think I think it all I think that there's a lot of there's I mean I would I would argue the mechanic is not predatory by its nature it could be used in a predatory way perhaps but it's not it, it just just having a random selection is not 
predatory. It's just not. What makes a mechanic predatory? Well, if you're being dishonest or you're misleading, um, you know, this is the casino industry had to deal with this a long time ago. You know, you can't have a slot machine that shows near misses, right? Where it says like, okay, we're only going to get paid on the main line. So let's show that really rare token more often than it would normally occur on the other lines to make people think, oh, I almost got it. Will that be predatory? Because human beings are really good at processing probability. And when you see that thing come up many times, you're like, okay, it's gotta gotta be happening sometime. Well, that's actually against gaming regulations because it's misleading, right? And similarly, that's that I would view as predatory for sure. Um, And there's many other ways to do it that are predatory. As far as underage and protecting children, um, I think that's important too. It just depends on how you implement the feature, but just having random chance is not in, in itself predatory. If you had a game where you could open a backpack and it has a different colored shirt, why is that predatory? You got the red shirt. Everybody wants a green. Well, go find another backpack. That's okay. You'll get one eventually. Um, as long as it's it's realistic and not things. When it, when it comes to putting down money and, and actually having real consideration and then having a chance, and then especially if you tie that then to something that has um, real value at the other side, then you have to be very careful about what you're doing and, and make sure it's aimed at the right target audiences and that you're you're doing it in a way that's that's um, clear and respectful. Yeah, I, I've come from a I've played many many hours of FIFA and I know pretty much the ins and outs of the thing. So this could be an argument for days. I feel, but it, this is the kind of system we have. It's cur- I'm curious to see where the future of loot boxes in general is heading and if there will be any more regulations. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. Um, I don't share the the common industry um, trope that all loot boxes are bad. I don't think that's true. I just don't. I mean, lots lots of games I've played in my life that have the equivalent of loot boxes that have been a lot of fun. Uh, the chests have I opened in Zelda, right? I mean, you know, it's like they don't always have the same thing. And I mean, it's a, the the games games have always had a certain randomness to them. That's a lot of fun. It's the it's how you implement them and um, and how you how transparent you are with with what the chances are. Yeah, that's fair. That's totally fair. Um, Lou, believe it or not, we've done 50 Another minutes. Another one. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to have to keep you over like last time. I uh, just want to say thank you for your time. And I know you do a lot of these podcasts, so I appreciate that you're sharing your knowledge with, with so many people. That's, that's yeah, really no, admirable. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do them. I don't, I don't do that many of them, but I'm happy to do them when somebody reaches out. So I, maybe you don't. know. No, you've done a lot. I've, uh, if you look at your Google or your YouTube and type in your name, you've done a lot. Maybe you just forgot. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's been, well, I've been doing this for a very long time, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. Is there anything um, you want to plug that you want to, that you're working on that people should go no, follow I, you? I don't, yeah, I don't do these to plug things, right? I no, do these to answer fair. questions about things. So, but I'm, I'm very happy and excited about doing what I'm doing right now and, you know, um, uh, eager to see people. Um, that hopefully we're solving a good problem for fans everywhere. But but overall, I just hope that it's been useful, and I hope that they've enjoyed that your audience have enjoyed uh, my thoughts. And uh, you know, I don't I don't pretend to be right at uh, at everything by any means, but hopefully, I'm right more often than I'm wrong. All right, so. <laughs> that's that's what we can all hope for, I guess. Right? Huh? Exactly. Beautiful. All right. Thank you for your time. All right. You take care.